and welcome to episode 11 of Monsieur So British, written and read by me, Ian Moore. I'm a stand-up comedian and best-selling author. I live in rural France where I run a B&B and what appears to be a small zoo stuffed with animals who have varying levels of mental issues. The subject of this podcast varies with each episode, partly because I wear so many different hats, partly because that's just modern life. I was recently diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which means I'm coping with middle age the way I've coped with all of my life. A mixture of bafflement and grudging irritation, mainly. But this one is about family. I may even show my cuddly side. So, let's get on with it. Monsieur So British, episode 11, Lost and Found. Nobody bends at the knee more than I do to the French. I've said it often, but they just have their priorities right. Like most continental European countries, the priority isn't work, it's family. It's meals over productivity, quality of life over quantity of must-dos ticked off. When you're stuffing your hastily bought Greg sandwich into your mouth sitting at your desk in what is laughably called your lunch hour, the French are having two hours, three courses and one or more piche of rosé. But, and it does pain me to say this, they just have Christmas all wrong. Firstly, any country that doesn't acknowledge the sheer majesty of Boxing Day and its preeminence as the best day of the year has issues anyway. But that also has a knock-on effect. Yes, Christmas is all about family, but that means family has to finish work on Christmas Eve, try, strikes permitting, to get where they need to get, and then, only then, when everyone is gathered, can Christmas Eve begin. The Christmas Eve evening meal, in my experience, usually starts around 11pm, and that just doesn't work for me. In the past, we've hosted as many as 25 people for Christmas Eve. The meal starts late and finishes late. Then there's the clearing up while trying to control five or six courses of rich food, accompanied by assorted wines, before then sneaking around with presents trying not to wake young children, specifically trying not to burp loudly as you hang Father Christmas's stocking on the end of their bed. Then you have to pile up everyone else's presents under the tree before each person places one of their shoes on top of their pile. That's a French tradition, apparently. I've asked for an explanation, but like most traditions, no one has a clue. Then it's bed for a few hours, sleep if you're lucky, but more likely just lying there feeling like a cross between an anaconda trying to digest a small horse and a wine-tasting spittoon. Then being woken at the crack of dawn, not by excited kids necessarily, but the need to get sprout potato and turkey prep done for it all to start again as the locusts rise expecting another feast. It sounds like fun, doesn't it? And it was for the first few years. Then, as I became a kind of annual host, it became a chore. Draining, physically and emotionally. And not just a chore. It became something to be feared. A looming presence on the calendar that would bring certain misery. In the manner of the smultuous Hollywood Christmas, with an X, movie, I fell out of love with Christmas itself. This year, then, would be different. It would certainly be different to last year. Last year, Natalie and the boys went to England for Christmas with Natalie's parents. But someone needed to stay at home and look after the animals, and to look after the B&B as well, which was fully booked. I played it in typical martyr fashion. I shall stay home, I volunteered grandly, like there was a choice anyway. You go, go, have a good time. Secretly and shamefully, I'd look forward to it. It was just a couple of days, for heaven's sakes, a no-pressure Christmas. My films, my music, eat at properly established mealtimes, fall asleep when I want. It didn't work out that way, of course. It was undoubtedly one of the most miserable experiences of my life. 
When you prepare a four-course meal for one and have only social media to share it with, yet you know you have family elsewhere, there's a, a sharpness to the solitude, an intense pain to the loneliness. I was utterly despondent, a wretched self-exiled hermit, albeit one swilling about on a mixture of vast quantities of wine, baileys and chocolate liqueurs. There was no way I was going to let that happen again. Christmas 2019 would be different, I determined, even if I had to cater for 25 or so voracious, high-expectation, low-diplomacy threshold French people, which fortunately I didn't. 2019 would be just a small family gathering and centred on the children, Morris and Terence and their cousins Max and Manny. It would be strange not having Samuel around. He was working on his gap year in the UK and would be having Christmas in Crawley with his girlfriend and his grandparents. But despite his absence, this would be the kind of Christmas I'd crave for years. No pressure, no stress, and lit by childish faces expectant and excited for Christmas morning. For me, Christmas is nothing if not the avaricious looks of wild-eyed capitalist-fed hunger on the faces of the innocent weans, backed up by the sloth-like movements of hungover parents. I'd missed it, frankly, and was determined to stick to the plan I had in mind. The plan, though, nearly faltered at the first hurdle, when a necessary medical appointment came through, unbelievably, for the morning of the 26th of December. It was an odd appointment to begin with. In order to qualify for the expensive rheumatoid arthritis treatment, I have to try all the other drugs first. Fair enough. And I'd been on this new drug for about six weeks. It doesn't do much for the chronic pain or the chronic fatigue, but what it lacks in health boosts, it manages to make up with providing severe gastric issues, reflux at every meal, and memory loss from the fatigue that it's supposed to combat, but doesn't. As a result, I have to see a gastroenterologist to confirm that this drug is doing more harm than good. I don't get this. I really don't. The idea that I would be put on a course of treatment whose side effects are so bad I need to see a different specialist seems half-cocked to me. It's almost like the cure theory is you think chronic inflammatory rheumatoid arthritis is bad. Well, wait until we throw refugee camp level gastric issues, short-term Alzheimer's and tsunami-sized acid reflux into the mix. You'll crave ordinary agony. So obviously... It was a very important appointment I'd been given, but not important enough to muck about with a fellow's Boxing Day ritual. No siree. So the appointment was moved back a month, at my request, by which time I expect the rheumatoid arthritis to be a secondary issue to my being permanently chained to a dialysis machine, but comforted by the knowledge that I had the best Boxing Day in living memory. Nothing was going to ruin my Christmas. Nothing. Which is not to say that fate didn't at least try. We had a gas leak just before Christmas and were evacuated by the fire brigade who put the house in a kind of E.T. lockdown scenario. Everybody out, they shouted through gas masks. We shuffled outside. Anybody left inside, came the urgent question. Probably a cat, there usually is. The look on the fireman's face suggested this may be his brother in backdraft moment, but Minu appeared in between the man's legs and sauntered out, annoyed at the disturbance. So did this potentially explosive episode get in the way of my plans? No. No, it didn't. Was it my fault that the pipe on the gas bottle had a use-by date of October 2006? Probably. Well, yes, actually. Yes, yes, that was my fault. The B&B was fully booked out on Christmas Eve and subsequently through Christmas. 
But Christmas Eve especially had been taken by an entire family who intended to cook themselves an evening meal and then leave in the morning, which is quite odd if you ask me, but they were paying cash, so, you know, no questions asked. Unfortunately, thanks to the continued and almost superhuman levels of incompetence from our electrician, we were having a series of power cuts in the B&B. The radiators, specifically, couldn't be on at the same time as the oven, or the hob, or the toaster. I tried to get around this problem by adjusting the timings of the radiators so that they went off when I thought the guests might be cooking. I was quite pleased with myself, until after I checked them all in, and I realised that, of course, they were French people, having a French Christmas. I'd set the radiators to turn off far too early. In fact, I'd set them to come on at exactly the same time they'd be putting the oven on and using the hob and the toaster, thereby creating a surge of electricity rather than spreading it out. In the end, and after a series of power cuts, I spent a great deal of Christmas Eve itself hiding in a damp corner of the storeroom next to the B&B kitchen, standing by the trip switch, ready to flick it back on when it snapped off. Fun times, obviously, but this was not in my Christmas plans. But did that absurd power-related incident ruin my festive mood? Well, yes, yes it did, actually, but I wrote it out like the trooper I am, with the help of some extremely unseasonal language and a box, a box, mind you, of Provencal rosé. Nothing, however, from now on, was going to stand in the way of overindulgence, festive goodwill, argumentative board games and a packed programme of Christmas films. Plus, I had a licence to overindulge. Everybody kept telling me how well I looked and that I had lost a lot of weight, particularly around the face, like that's ever really a compliment, and actually leading me to conclude that I must have spent much of the preceding few months looking like a right old bloater, so at least this medication was good for something. It was, in the end, the Christmas I'd hoped for. The four cousins played and laughed constantly, stayed up far too late and ate all the wrong things, and the adults, Natalie and I, her sister Joss and my brother-in-law Mike, did pretty much the same thing. And somewhere in the bedlam, I found my love of the festive period, because if Christmas is anything, it's for an adult to feel like a child again, even a trenchant old curmudgeon like me. There were down times, obviously. Morris insisted we go and see a football match in Tours on the 29th. It was a charity match in aid of Guinea and was being organised by Paul Pogba and, quote, friends, unquote. Those friends would include Antoine Griezmann, Blaise Matuidi, Robert Pires, Emile Mbappé and a host of other current and former French footballing royalty. Well, one can only assume that Paul Pogba is Billy No-Mates then, as he was the only one of the stars who bothered to turn up. Not that I could really blame them, as from where we sat in the stands it was about minus two, but all the same... We left the stadium at half-time with about 70% of the grumbling crowd shuffling back out of the place, Pogba's reputation dented. But that wasn't the worst of it. Morris had, as he always does, and because he's an optimist, taken along his autograph book. But somewhere in the frozen, grousing, trudging boredom, it got lost. It doesn't sound much, it really doesn't, and many of the more precious autographs have been removed and framed and hang on his bedroom wall. The book was an eclectic collection of... Mainly people I'd worked with, Richard Osman, Kelly Southerton, A.P. McCoy, Charles Dagnall, Emily Raisford-Brent, Ian Poulter and so on. Sports stars mainly. But it meant so much more to Morris. I hugged him and said we'd do everything we could to get it back. And he didn't cry. He just looked so sad. I've grown up with that book, he said quietly. To me it's part of the family. It felt 
looking back and the way he said it, that it was an end to his childhood innocence, that the world, life itself, with its mocking, capricious nature, had slapped him around the face and said, wake up, kid, time to put away childish things. It was the world I'd tried so hard to keep at bay since the start of Christmas. Well, for most of the last six months, really, but which inevitably will always have the last word just to let you know who's boss. We spoke to Lost and Found in tour and at the stadium itself, but nothing. It was dropped in the stand, probably, to be swept up and thrown away. A 14-year-old's memories so far just discarded like garbage. Either that or some French kid has picked it up, kept it, and is even now googling Joffre Archer and Noel Gallagher and not having a clue. We persuaded Morris to go to a party he'd been invited to on New Year's Eve to take his mind off it all, which he did reluctantly, leaving just Natalie, Terence and me to see in the new year. By half ten, Natalie and I, as usual on New Year's Eve, were seriously flagging. We kept catching each other's eyes, guiltily, not sure if we could stretch to midnight, but we hadn't banked on Terence and his insatiable energies, which meant that the last 90 minutes of 2019 were spent watching the tireless tea do a series of impressions of famous cricket bowling actions through the years. A bizarre, hilarious journey through the mind of an irrepressible ten-year-old, making it easily the best New Year's Eve for years, and the first that I've reached midnight on since about 2010. And I got to midnight then because I fell asleep on the sofa at nine and was woken up by fireworks on the telly. Did seeing in the new year mean that 2020 would be a good one? I'm not one given to looking on the bright side. That way disappointment lies, frankly. And if I'd recently rediscovered my love for the festive season, I was still hugely suspicious of New Year itself, specifically the 4th of January. Natalie and Samuel share their birthday on January the 4th. My eldest son Samuel was born on Natalie's 30th birthday in the same hospital, delivered by the same midwife. A midwife who, incidentally, slapped me around the face. After 15 hours of labour, Natalie was rushed into the operating theatre, and it was all very dramatic, too dramatic for a pathetic creature like me. In anti-stiff-upper-lip response, I sank to my knees and wailed, She's not coming out alive, is she? The tiny... Bangladeshi midwife slapped me around the face and basically told me to get a grip. She needs you now more than ever, she shouted, and dragged me off to the theatre. Joseph's feelings on the whole nativity thing tend to be underrepresented, but because of January the 4th I have an inkling of what it's like to feel utterly irrelevant in these things, the plaything of some higher power. January the 4th is also the date we moved to France 15 years ago, so as you can probably guess, it's quite a big day in the Moore family calendar, but for once, Natalie was dreading it. With Samuel being in England, it would be, she said, the first birthday in 20 years I'll be without him. She said this to me in the car the day before her birthday, and while we were parking in the Ikea car park in Tours, so it's fair to say neither of us looked particularly happy at that point. My phone went off, breaking the mood. It was a text from Samuel. Just boarding the plane, it said. See you later. It had been Samuel's idea all along. He hadn't been home in five months and wanted to be with his mum for their birthday. The bond, I imagine, must be almost like that of twins. A strong sense of each other that doesn't need to be articulated ever. It's just there. I had arranged his flights and the plan was to try and get Natalie to the airport without raising her suspicions. That I failed in that regard is more down to the fact that my wife has a relentless curiosity and a deeply suspicious nature, and five minutes short of the airport, she could contain herself no longer. 
I daren't say it, she blurted out, grinning so widely she looked like Zippy from Rainbow. But I think I know what you're doing. It was a lovely, tearful reunion, and just the first that evening. Morris and Terence had no inkling of our plan either. It was all very much on a need-to-know basis, and Samuel sauntered into the lounge just as Terence emerged from the kitchen. Terence stared at him for a few seconds. It was as if he didn't recognise this stranger. Then he leapt into his brother's arms and wept. He wept uncontrollably, totally overwhelmed by it all, and stayed in Samuel's arms for a good ten minutes sobbing. Morris heard the commotion and came downstairs, and he beamed too, some faith restored perhaps, and joined the other two in a hug. Natalie cried again, and so did I. You know, that's one hell of a start, 2020. You better be able to keep this up. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, There'll be another one out uh, in a couple of weeks, but if you want any information on books, gigs, B&B and so on, my website is ianmore.info. And please leave feedback for this podcast. It's always welcome. Thanks a lot. See you soon. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.